Welcome to PR360, where every week the brightest minds in public relations, communications, and media discuss the topics and trends you need to know about. PR360 was produced in partnership with Global Results Communications. Now here's your host, Todd Perry. Welcome back to PR360. My guest today is Fumi Lijadu. Fumi is a creative communication specialist who loves pop culture. She has both agency and in-house experience in PR across a range of sectors, including art, publishing, finance, tech, real estate, and retail. Currently, she's an account executive at MSL in the UK, and she recently finished her dissertation on a rather compelling topic that combines reality TV with classic literature. Fumi, is there anything I've missed? Well, that's that's me in a nutshell. Yeah. Good. It's nice to know we can reduce people down to an entire paragraph, <laughs> and that's who you are. That's your life. We've. That's it. It's done. <laughs> we we just want to make sure we've got you in the appropriate box before we start talking. Um, so speaking of out of the box kind of thinking, uh, you did something very interesting for your dissertation. And it's a topic that's uh, definitely took a lot of creativity, and it's called Contagious Performances of Heartbreak and Betrayal, a comparative <laughs> study. A com- Did I mess up? No, no, it's just every time I hear the title, it makes me laugh because of how intense and academic it is in terms of just, you know, contagious performances of, of heartbreak and betrayal. It's, um, that's what I love about it, how ridiculous it is, and um, that connection to culture. Well, that's only the first half. It goes, Contagious Performances of Heartbreak and Betrayal, colon, A Comparative Study of Early Modern Comedy and Love Island. And real quick, for people who are unfamiliar, can you explain Love Island? Because I know it just recently came over to the States, and yes. I think it was a, a phenomenon in the UK before. Yeah, no, it's a UK classic. Um, very problematic reality TV. Um, it's all about singles traveling to a location in the sun, usually, um, and they all are clad, scantily clad in bikinis or whatever mm. else. And they're meant to go home with the love of their lives at the end. Um, oh. That usually doesn't happen. <laughs> um, I no, mean, I, I, it tends not to. <laughs> and it's, it's meant, it's just, um, there's a lot of mess and emotional um, outpourings. And that was kind of what I wanted to tap into with my dissertation. Um, it's quite theatrical in terms of, you know, the big heartbreaks, the big betrayals. Um, and they have these sorts of like events in the show where they have to prove um, their devotion to one another and these speeches and <laughs> they get eliminated based on, um, you know, someone changing their mind about, oh, you know, he actually wore the wrong co- color socks today. So I just, I, I don't love <laughs> him anymore. And um, yeah, oh. so basically my dissertation was trying to connect this idea of um, what we see on screen to like theater and Shakespeare. So yeah, it was awesome. It was, it was fun. Now, I don't know if you've seen both the UK and the United States versions of Love Island. Have you seen both? I have seen a little bit of the US one. The US one is really chaotic and fun. Um, the UK one is kind of dying a little bit. Oh, 
I was just going to say if there was a difference in the way problematic love manifests on what side Ooh, of the interesting. pond. Um, I think it's the same, just different accents. <laughs> okay. <laughs> same much. trash, different accents. Yeah, just okay. different accents. So now, so you compared that to kind of romantic classics, kind of, I would say, what, like, kind of 1800s or turn of the century before this this one. Uh, what books or what literature did you compare and contrast Love Island to? So I compared Love Island to Shakespeare's Love's Labour's Lost and mm. this play called The Rover that's by a 16th century playwright called Afra Ben. Um, and both of these plays sort of explore um, courtship and men and women getting to know each other um, in a season that's centered around um, dating and freedom and consuming food. They're both kind of set in that sort of like either festival time or summertime. Um, and I think that connected mm -hmm. really, really nicely with Love Island, which is meant to be like this summer, um, this idea of freedom and summer. Uh, yeah, and escapism to people as well, because in the UK, people are watching these like people in running around a villa in Spain, and <laughs> they look outside and like their windows, it's all grey. So there's an interesting escapism part there for people as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're looking at it, and it's uh, totally rainy, and it's cloudy, and it's going to be that way for another six months. And you see people frolicking in Ibiza or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it also means people get to enjoy the fact that, like, things go wrong for them as well. So they're kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, they deserve it. Um, so it can stoke right, the flames, yeah. yeah. So are the sentiments similar? Did you, did you find similar sentiments in this kind of classic, you know, highbrow material with this kind of what's seen as kind of trashy lowbrow material now. Did you actually find commonality or uh, were yeah. you able to judge current culture based on the fact that things used to be better? Yeah, I mean, I think things have always been wild and like always been chaotic in terms of how um, people relate to each other in terms of gender and power dynamics in society. Um, and I think it was really, really interesting comparing modern day audiences even from a PR perspective too, thinking about how digital audiences tap into television and things they see um, in a way where they're always reacting live so that they're, they're mm. watching the television and then they're on their phone tweeting, mm. live tweeting, talking to their friends, calling people. So it's all very like interesting. Um, but the thread that goes through it is the idea of people wanting to feel um, connected to like a strong theme. So the emotional pull of ideas of romance and love is quite a powerful one that, you know, gets people watching these sorts of reality TV shows. Um, and I guess also the predictability of things going wrong too can offer a strange comfort, I guess, for people. Um, and in PR, yeah. I guess, you're always trying to tap into different emotions of your audience and try and see like, okay, is there a certain fear they have you can solve? Or is there... Um, uh, is there like a hope that you can inspire and cultivate more? So I think that writing dissertation is an interesting, has an interesting link to the work I do now in terms of really, really getting to the core of what is it the audience wants? And is there any way you can close that gap through language or an idea or key spokesperson or, yeah. Wow. 
That's that's pretty heavy. And also, you now when, when comparing and contrasting these things, you find that there's way more similarity in what people are looking for in terms of love and Love Island, or you know, looking back to Shakespeare. Yeah, I guess I think when I compared um, both elements, I guess it was a very specific study of heartbreak and betrayal as two specific emotions and contexts um, that both involve some level of rejection or um, surprise. Um, And I guess those kind of both link into the idea of like um, vitality and just the the idea that human life is always in motion. It's always going on. Um, I think the main things I did find was that the... (laughs) <laughs> there's there's something really potent about the disgruntled um, disgruntled lover um, trope of people okay. how people react in different situations in terms of gender stereotypes um, and the idea of blame um, blaming things to the whole like blaming things on a whole gender for instance if one specific oh. incident doesn't work out. Um, and that that happened in the Shakespeare, in the Shakespeare play as well, um, because it didn't become like oh this one woman scammed me. It became women, are uh, X Y Z, um, and in Love Island uh, as well, people say things about you know how, what girls think or guys, and they're all the same, and you know, and it's, it becomes like a a sort of universalizing of individual experience. Um, so yeah, I think that that kind of idea of making the personal more universal was found in both in both eras, um, now then and now. Uh, you know that that's why we have incels these yes. days is is be, because all women are that way, yeah. and I will never find love because all women uh, are against me or they don't want anyone like me or you know yeah, it's they a just kind of just. Yeah, but people just discre- just you know discredit themselves based on a stereotype of an entire gender, and I, I think maybe that peeling away those stereotypes and, and getting down to it's much more po- probably important to communicate to the individual is something that people need to pay attention to more when they are talking in like mass communications or they're talking in public relations. Like just one message dedicated to quote women is not going to resonate with all women. Absolutely. And I think that demographic detail is really, really important. I mean, sometimes we work with influencers and you know, there might be someone with an incredible audience, but they actually just don't speak to the people that we might need for a certain campaign whether it's like okay. a lip gloss or whether it's um, a sports program for young women. Um, and I guess like we are always trying to just narrow things down to like, what is it that people need? Um, mm. And how can we, yeah, how can we provide the messaging or the faces of it that don't, um, that don't sort of like miss the mark and that align mm-hmm. well. Because um, people always know. I mean, there's a, a recent advert um, in the UK of a hairstyling tool. Um, and this, it was sort of branded as made for everyone. Um, okay. But the woman who was using the tool was wearing a wig in the, in the advert. Oh. 
something that was quite obviously a wig. So people were questioning, like, oh, was it was it obviously a wig because the people did a poor job at creating the ad, or it was to show that you know all types of people, whether it's natural hair or wig or whatever, can use the product. I guess it was probably meant to show, you know, this is a black woman using this product of ours. But yeah. in reality, um, if you're marketing that to every type of um, every type of person, it's kind of difficult because you sort of run into the problem of, okay, well, if I can only use this um, for my wigs, then why, why should I buy your brand specifically? Right. Um, and, you know, that's not the, the everyday look for everyone. So I think it, it caused quite a bit of stir online in terms of debate of like, oh, is this, was this an effective ad? Um, and I guess that's always the question when it comes to beauty and representation. Um, I mean, only recently we found like um, we've been seeing better makeup for different skin tones and mm-hmm. um, especially for darker skin tones too. Um, so I think it's always evolving. What's always amazing to me about something like that is that if I had a makeup company, I would think, how do I make makeup that appeals to the largest swath of people to sell the most makeup, right? You would figure that years ago, people would have had that figured out and would go, oh, I should make different skin tones because not everybody looks like... Looks like Gwyneth Paltrow out there. So, uh, and, and the fact that it took people so long to figure that out, it, I mean, that's probably just because you don't have enough people of color in the boardroom or enough diversity within the company that you're completely missing a huge point. Yeah. No, I think that's the problem as well. I guess it's quite difficult if, from the internal perspective, um, people pitching in and, and brainstorming and putting the ideas together you know, they they have their point of view and that can be skewed mm. in terms of, you know, not even for any negative reason or meaning any harm, but just the, if you don't have those voices to say, ah, well, you know, did you think about how it would land with this kind of person or those missing conversations can end up like Kendall Jenner, Kendall Jenner and her racism <laughs> solving, her racism solving oh. Pepsi. <laughs> that is, oh, that is... I bet someone could do probably a 12-hour-long documentary yeah. on just that ad and how awful it is yeah. and how, how how it offends everyone. Yeah. You know, there are a few things that offend everyone. <laughs> and I think that yeah. they, they found out a magical formula to doing that. And for people who aren't familiar with that, I think it was probably maybe 2015-ish, 2016 if I'm not wrong, and there was a Kendall Jenner of you know the Kardashian family, who's I, I assume she's like a billionaire, is leading a protest, and this was around like I guess the United States where we had like the the women's march yeah. after Trump was elected, and there was a real feeling of people protesting, but but the 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 ad was incredible because Pepsi was like, well, we're not going to take a stand for anything. So we're going to take a billionaire (laughs) and we're going to have them drinking Pepsi and leading a fight against something that we won't say what it is, but you can project what you like on it. And so it it cheapened people protesting. It's just across the board, it was uh, meaningless. No, I think it really showed the what not to do. 
Um, and, and I think it's good to compare these sorts of campaigns, not just imitate the positive ones and and take aspects of the positive campaigns um, from a communications or marketing perspective, but actually think about like, you know what, maybe these are things we could avoid and what is the kind of thinking that we can do that would absolutely steer clear of um, that level of, um, I guess, just like omission and like tactlessness as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was funny. It was actually I was interviewing a guy. I think his name was uh, Stancil, John John Stephen Stancil, on this show, and he was in um, work for uh, doing uh, social media for some big companies, and he had a good rubric for things. He says, "If I make a post before I put it out, I ask myself, is a fifteen year old going to laugh at me for making this?" <laughs> And like a 15-year-old will walk, like maybe some 50-year-olds in an ivory tower somewhere can make the Kendall Jenner ad yeah. and go, this is great. Look at this. We're talking to the kids. Yeah, Look this at this. Is the best Protest, thing we've man. Ever done. <laughs> and you can walk a 15-year-old in the room that knows what's genuine and not genuine, mm. and they will laugh their butt off yeah. immediately. You know? Yeah. There's another question I had about influencers with you, and this is a little light, but. Why is it that all female influencers wear big floppy hats? Can we explain this? I blame every time I, blame I see, Jack Moo. Yeah, I blame Jack Moo's the bla- the brand. Like I really do because I think like that brand had they had like a drop for this hat. Um, I think a couple of summers ago, um, and yeah. it took over the internet. And I think like because we're in this era of. Um, I mean, people are also talking about quiet luxury, but also I think people are still into their maximalism and um, mm. grand fashion. There is something about that aesthetic that people replicate. And if someone sees one post done before by someone big, then it's just like it becomes like, you know, a never ending loop of these. Yeah, these floppy hat. The markets, the markets booming. <laughs> I, gotta, I, I know one showed up at my house one day my wife ordered one and i was like what's the deal with the floppy hat she was like she was like you can pack the floppy hat and it doesn't it doesn't lose shape and then also you know you stand out in front of a bunch of wildflowers on uh instagram and people love you uh let's see here so as someone who works in pr and it's unusual, you know. I mean, I mean, it's always unusual, interesting times, I guess, yeah. in the world of media. And and that, what what are some challenges right now that you're seeing in the UK that your your clients are dealing with on the PR front that are kind of common or common threads or themes you're seeing that you have to solve right now? Yeah, I guess some of the things um, that our clients are struggling with is the reality of us being communications professional like communications professionals in a landscape where journalism jobs are um, always changing um, there's mm. not as much retention or people staying long in their roles so you might have a really good contact somewhere and then after a year or a couple of months they've bounced somewhere else um, and I think mm. even for these publications as well they're quite str- they're quite stretched um, so getting your story in the media is probably harder than ever. I mean, um, and we work with, we work in tandem with, 
um, all sorts of different outlets and wires and there's all sorts of approaches we can have towards it. But in order to make an impact, um, there is quite a lot of um, sort of strategizing and planning within a landscape, of course, that's incredibly competitive and difficult to um, see those incredible results every single time. Um, mm. So I think that's one thing. Um, and I guess in the UK as well, of course, we have, um, we're in an era that's incredibly politically fraught. Um, and mm -hmm. so we have to be really, really careful about, you know, what is our messaging? How can we make sure that it sort of aligns in a way that doesn't sort of, doesn't, um, how can we make sure that our messaging is as polished and watertight as possible so as not to alienate any consumers or whether it's a business context as well and you're speaking to in a business-to-business -business context. Um, so that's another thing as well. I guess it's, it's hard to um, be as creative as possible if you are always thinking about, okay, the cri potential crises. Um, but I guess you always right. stay prepared and um, make, you know, brainstorm and put ideas together of how to address things. Um, but yeah, reputation is more fragile than ever. I, I don't know if you agree, especially in the social media age too. Uh, I think, you know, what I think what you were saying a second ago was seemed to me like a very challenging thing. And I think maybe this aligns uh, with my answer. If that's not a weird response, uh, I think you're, you're you're talking about you know understanding that there's so many different perspectives looking at your message that it has to be like watertight, but and but as to not rub people the wrong way. But then at what point do you get to the point where you're being vague or you don't mean anything to anybody yeah. because you have to create a very kind of vanilla approach uh, message? Yeah. yeah, no, that's a really good point, and I think. It's important to also bear in mind, like, losing the heart and the humanity as well. And, and you, you know, I think if you don't, if you don't take risks, you also can't, um, you can't necessarily put the ingredients there to pull off a great campaign if you don't take some risks. So I think that's always yeah. the balance. Um, but of course, you know, there's always the prevention is better than cure. Um, yeah. So I think there's that we're always factoring that in when in the ideation process. Um, and then I guess also managing expectations of the clients as well of, you know, if we go with this angle, um, this is a potential that could be extrapolated um, out of our um, information. So we're always being proactive as well. Yeah. Uh, we're we're kind of coming towards the end here, but I had two questions I wanted to get to. One, um, I noticed on your Twitter feed that you had a hashtag um, for journalists, um, yeah, to, for people for people to contact you. What was that hashtag you're using? So, journal request and PR request are two amazing hashtags um, that I use when in my research. Um, and I find it really great in terms of identifying journalists that are looking for stories and then also mm -hmm. um, for them to find me as well. Um, so it works, yeah. it works both ways too. 
Um, and yeah, I think it's really, really incredible what you can find when you search with those hashtags um, in terms of like people that are looking for stories that day. Um, and yeah, Twitter is not over. It's, <laughs> it's, it's still, it's nope. still very, very useful. Still very, very useful. Uh, I, yeah, I think, um, the people, the same people that want to declare Twitter over are the people who would be first to throw themselves off a roof if they had to quit. <laughs> I mean, are you team threads? Um, I don't know what your take is on that. I, you know, I, I like, I like Twitter. I think that it's always been a cesspool and to and it will continue to be a cesspool but one that's actually very useful in many ways as well yeah so i'm i'm fine with that and i i know what it is and i don't expect anything more or less and then i tried threads and i thought it was fun i thought at first it felt to me like twitter before twitter became corrupt it was like fun Twitter. So I liked it, but I, I haven't investigated it enough just because I'm like, I spent enough time on social media already. I don't know if I need any more of this. But it definitely seemed like a almost like something I'd like to look at at night yeah. when I'm just like relaxing, having a, a beer, you know? Yeah. No, I haven't downloaded it. I, I don't need another app. And yeah, it seemed quite dry as well. I, I think people haven't found out how to make threads fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's who uh, they follow, but my group, no. Uh, so one last question, and if this is inappropriate, please tell me, but uh, what's your age? Because I know you just did a dissertation, so I'm assuming early 20s. Yeah, I'm early 20s, yeah. Okay, well, this this leads into a generational thing that I wanted to bring up based on your dissertation. So as a... Um, older member of Gen Z slash younger millennial. I've had a fight with my buddy over over this. And I remember when, as a Gen Xer, as a 46-year-old, that in the 90s, us hip kids were all about... There was a certain level of snobbery, yeah. which was acceptable amongst Gen Xers. Like, if you listen to a band that wasn't cool, oh. then, you, then you weren't cool, right? Yeah. If... You read books that were trashy. It it was a reflection of you and your morality <laughs> and who you are as a person. If you like movies that weren't avant-garde or whatever, people, if you watch too much television, that was the worst thing ever. Yeah. Um, all these things were ways to be judged by a Gen Xer. But now... It's different. Now there's a thing amongst younger people that's like, I like what I like, and that's fine. Mm. And you're a snob, and you're an evil person if you judge me on that. I think and it's interesting. I, I, yeah. So, yeah, what's your, what's your take on that? And, and most importantly, who's right? I think we have, like, I don't know if the... Um, depends from on country, um, but illiteracy has always been a thing. Um, and of course it's a loaded, loaded term, right? In terms of like mm -hmm. who gets to define who's educated and who isn't. But I think a lot of people aren't necessarily super, super clued up or educated on certain things. And at the same time, we also have loads of access to the internet and anyone can start podcasts and anyone can be an expert and people, you know, on social media, someone can say, did you know that 50% of blah, 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 and start talking about it without necessarily citing mm. their sources? So 
right. I guess being in the misinformation age and the, and the internet age as well means that the the playing field is so open in a beautiful way, but also in a way that takes a lot of skill to navigate in terms of cl- mm-hmm. clearing out and separating separating the mess from the value and um, the central messages. Um, so with that, I feel like there isn't the same sort of, there aren't the same sort of like tastemakers that are passively accepted. People will see mm-hmm. and hear someone say, this is good or this is objectively bad and challenge it. And I think that can be really, really positive, yeah. but it can also mean that, you know, there's no sense of like, um, there's, there's not shame. Yeah. There's no shame. There's no shame. There's no shame in watching Love Island. Okay. And as, as a Gen Xer, we, you know, that's why I thought your thing was so interesting because you're taking kind of highbrow and kind of lowbrow oh, my brain and comparing and, and, and contrasting it. And I really want to be team highbrow almost just as a reaction to maybe, maybe I'm just being old, you know, I don't know, but yeah, no, I think it's, I think people are always interested by it, which is fantastic. I mean, whether they're like the lowbrow connoisseur or the highbrow, you know, highbrow hero, there's always, <laughs> there's always an interest. And I think that's why I wanted to do in my dissertation is to create something where people think, no, oh, okay. I never thought of comparing those two. Um, and I mean, I worked really hard with my supervisor on it. Um, but I don't know, I think today we're like, we need, um, we're still navigating how to separate and sift through the over overwhelm of information we have access to. And, you know, it's always being produced. I mean, someone is probably making a podcast right now on why Taylor Swift is, um, uh, you know, the Illuminati Antichrist or something. Um, and, you know, who's going to make the reaction video to counter that claim or um, yeah. who's going to make, um, yeah, so we're always trying to like catch up to the m- misinformation. I think that's going to keep keep being a vital vital thing to to monitor in the coming in the coming years, months, decades. You know, I think the person making the counter Taylor Swift is in the Illuminati video is probably somebody. It's probably somebody in the Illuminati, right? Because they they're like, "Hey, I didn't know hey, that we gotta was gonna go that <laughs> go in that don't direction." Out her. Don't out her as being Illuminati. We need to keep her in the fold. But you know, Fumi, this has been a really fun conversation we've had here and I really thank you for coming on the show. Uh, how can people who are listening to the show follow you or you, do you want them to follow you on socials, on LinkedIn, check out your dissertation? Uh, where do people go from here? So you can find um, me on LinkedIn at Fumi Lijadu, um, F-U-N-M-I L-I-J-A-D-U um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Fumi Creates, which is my first name in Creates. And mm-hmm. Instagram, you can find me on Art by Fumi. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much me. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Take- oh, and the yeah. last thing as well, my website is FumiLeJadu.com. So yeah, check me out there. And they can read your dissertation there, I believe. That's where I saw it. And you had a really good kind of breakdown, almost like a... Uh, yeah, my visual like summary. Like yeah. A, 
That was good for someone who's slow like me. It was a good way for me to ingest your your highbrow take. But thanks again for coming on the show, and I uh, would love to have you back again sometime. Yeah, of course. I'd love to be back on. Thank you so much. PR360 was produced by Todd Perry in partnership with Global Results Communications. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review wherever you get podcasts. Follow GRC on all socials at Global Results. Follow Todd on Twitter at Todd A. Perry. That's Todd with one D. Talk to you next week. <laughs>